So, yes, we're reading James chapter 4 today. Um, If you want to follow in your Bibles, it's on page 1,883. So, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. Thank you, Heather. Good morning. I hit go on my timer so I don't go too far over time today. I hope you're going well. My name is Michael. If I haven't met you, it'd be great to come and say hello after the service. And my number is on here. If you have questions, please feel free to SMS them. And at the end of the service, if we get time, we will go through those. Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, some of you might know that uh, I grew up in Wyala. Um, in Wyala, the school I went to would take all the year 10 students on a camp. It was a much anticipated camp called the Murray Venture. Uh, a bunch of year 10 students, they would take us down to the Murray, put us into groups, and then give us maps of the area, a compass. Uh, we had to pack our own food and water and set us off. Unaccompanied by staff, we would go on a two day kayak down the river. I had to stop on the way, sign in checkpoints so they knew where we were, uh, camp on the way, cook our own food, turn around and hike two days back to base camp. Well, my group, um, we did really well on the kayaking. It was fun, it was positive, we worked well as a team, not so good on the hike back to base camp. So we had some strong personalities in that group. Uh, There were different views on things like, you know, which way the map should be held. Uh, which arrow actually pointed to north on the compass? You know, there were different views about uh, which paddock should we take which shortcut through to get home earlier. Um, 
nonetheless, the last day of the hike, uh, we walked confidently for two hours in exactly the wrong direction. Um, we, you know, the, the biggest personalities won and we just arrogantly set off. Uh, in the end, we had to stop and ask at a farmhouse for a correction. They put us on the straight and narrow. We got back to base camp, but only just in time. The bus was there. All the other kids were on the bus. The, everything had been packed up. And the teachers were a little bit shocked when they realized how far we'd walked that day. We got totally disorientated. Uh, I think the Christian life is a bit about being, it's actually being reorientated to God. The Christian life, when you become a Christian for the first time, um, we repent of our old way. It's, we're reorientated away from the values and desires of the world onto the values and desires of God. It's why we're taking from death to life when we become a Christian, from darkness to light. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian, to someone who is submitting to God. James knows, however, that we don't always get it right. And we know that we muck it up all the time. Even though we want to do the right thing, we want to live the way God has now made us to live, well, the values and priorities of the world keep creeping back into the way we order our life. We get spiritually disorientated. At least I do. I wonder if you're in the same boat. We're not always perfect and we need a correction. We need to have our hearts realigned with the values of God, with His ways. Well, the church that James wrote to had exactly this issue. Uh, in chapter 4, he sets it off and starts outlining again the problem that he sees in the church. He says in verse 1 of 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? There's fighting, there's quarrels. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? The values and desires of the world had taken hold in the church. And from chapter 3, there was that dichotomy of wisdom of the world versus wisdom from God. Well, the wisdom of the world had taken root where there should be devotion to God and following out the wisdom of God. Fights and quarrels had come in, competing desires. I take it these were competing desires, both between different individuals in the church, as well as in the heart of each individual, there's this competing desire, a desire to do good, to you know, follow a conscience lit up by the Spirit of God, as well as a desire for the things of the world. There's been competing desires and they're bursting out in conflicts. Individuals are pushed this way and that by these competing desires. They've got a, a foot in the camp of the world wanting to live, well, for the pleasures of the world, as well as kind of a foot in God's camp wanting to live for Him. That's why they're called double-minded. It's a word that's come up a couple of times in the book of James. Then we get to verse 2 of chapter 4. Have a look. You desire, but you do not have so you kill. Hang on. Was there actually killing in this church? Well, I don't think there probably was murder going on in the church. If, you, if there actually was, I reckon James might have opened his letter in this way. You know, like, greetings, brothers and sisters. Seriously, stop killing. Salutations. You know, there we go. I reckon it would have been up front. I mean, they could have, they could, it's possible, I suppose, that they could have been killing in the church, but I reckon what is more likely is that James is picking up on the teachings of Jesus around the morality and the law. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, which James keeps kind of 
referring to subtly in his book. In Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus expands the law. He says, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder. This is in Matthew 5, 21. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. So Jesus expands the law to include not only the deed of breaking the, t- the Ten Commandments, but the desire that, that leads to that. I wonder if James was doing a similar thing. You know, you, the desire in your heart, or you've already killed them in your heart, it might as well be murder. You've, you desire and you kill. James is really strong on the perfection required of believers. It's like, again, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I need those perfect clean hands that we saw in the kids' talk today, scrubbed in, made clean. So perhaps James is picking up on those teachings. I mean, he's already done a similar thing to this in chapter 2 of James, where he talks about, uh, you know, once you've broken one aspect of the law, you might as well have broken it all. He says in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, if you show favoritism or you sin and you're convicted as a lawbreaker, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point is convicted as breaking it. So James is using that law expansion, I think, that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So whether killing was a hyperbole, you know, an exaggeration to make a point, which I think it probably was, or whether it actually was going on, James gets to the root causes. He drills down to the motivations. In chapter 4, the spotlight shines in our hearts. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Are they not from that corrupt well, the salty spring that he talked about in chapter 3? The root cause of the problems is on the inside is that have been polluted by the world. Right at the end of chapter 1, James says to them, you know, keep from being polluted by the world. Well, it certainly happened. See, the ultimate problem for the people that James is writing to is not you know, the favoritism that they show. It's not the, the lack of good works. It's not their foul words, their quarrels and fights. It's their polluted internal well. It's their heart. It's their failure to accept the implanted word from our key verse in chapter 121. It's their dead faith they talked about in chapter 2. It's their worldly, demonic wisdom that has infected them. Their hearts are no longer aligned with God and His heavenly wisdom. It's aligned with the world their internal attitude, the treasure of their heart is aligned with false wisdom. Yeah, this is the wisdom we've talked about before in this book. It's the wisdom of the world which puts worldly values and pleasures above people. They no longer love their neighbour. So that royal law, love your neighbour, well, that's been replaced with love for money and self. So no wonder their prayers went unanswered. They prayed out of selfish motivations, entrenched in their hearts, by a worldly wisdom that has no place in God's economy. That's why their prayers weren't answered. They prayed so they could spend what they get on themselves. Essentially, they're praying out of a place of that the hedonism, desire to please the self. And James calls them an adulterous people. He really gets stuck in 
Have a look at verse 4. You know, you adulterous people, he says. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? What does he mean by this? It certainly is, um, I think, the shake, wake up, see your situation kind of passage. James is not going to let them go. You adulterous people, don't be friends of the world. That means you're an enemy of God. What is so bad about being friends of the world? What is what has James got going on in his head here? Because it's not saying that we shouldn't be friends with unbelievers. It's not saying that we shouldn't, I don't know, work in the public sector. It's not saying that we shouldn't buy a house on a, a worldly street. No, I think we're told to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, God is keenly interested in the way we befriend outsiders it's central to the fact the mission of the church is to welcome outsiders in and be God's shining light to them so what does he mean by friendship with the world I reckon he's probably using this idea of friendship with the world in the same way that um, other New Testament writers like the Apostle Paul and John have used friendship with the world in other books so if you look at um, what you don't need to turn there if you don't want to but in 2 Timothy 3 verse 4 the um, Paul says you know, we're warned against being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's this flipping of priorities, living for the world rather than living for God. And in 1 John chapter 2.15, we're told, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world, I think that we're told not to love, the idea of the world here, I think it's all of those forces and elements that are opposed to God. So to love the world over God means that the orientation of our hearts has now been aligned to that whole complex of human institutions, values and traditions that knowingly or unwittingly have set themselves up in opposition to God. Of course the world doesn't love God, they don't know God. Of course it's normal that their priorities would be to promote the self. It's not saying that unbelievers can't do good things, but they don't do them for God. We know the destructive force of adultery. And the best way to make an enemy out of your wife is to go and chase after another lover, right? And James likens the spiritual unfaithfulness to his, of his people to unfaithful spouse. Very strong language. So those who've allowed friendship with the God, with those who've allowed friendship with the world to slowly topple God off of his rightful place in their hearts, and he says they've been unfaithful. They've they've become adulterous in their relationship with God. They're double-minded. They're duplicitous in their love. And what does this do to our friendship with God? Well, it's not neutral. <laughs> he says it makes, him, makes God their enemy. James says in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 4, Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends with the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He, he's a jealous. He's, God is jealous of our allegiance to him. The message is plain. God, is, God longs for those who are flirting with the world to come back to Him. Like, 
like the prodigal son. He longs for them to return. God's heart breaks as his children live out worldly wisdom and prioritize self over love for neighbor and love for God. It's a hard-hitting book. I think the most surprising verse in this chapter, maybe the most surprising verse in the book is verse 6. Have a look at it. It's chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives us more grace. Do you notice this comes, seems to come out of nowhere? He's just kind of bang on the head with your, your sinfulness. But he gives us more grace. James is a pointy letter. I don't know about you, but I have felt the sting of its instructions. You know, you think about it, as we've gone through James, in chapter 1, we were told, you know, persevere through trials and temptations. And that's hard work. We're told that we must not show favoritism and judge others. And if we do, we break the royal law, love your neighbor. It might as well be a murderer in chapter 2. We're told not to dishonor the poor. We're told that our faith must produce produce deeds. We're told to control our tongues in chapter 3. We're told to reject worldly wisdom, envy, and selfish ambition. And now in chapter 4, that spotlight is shone on our own desires. Uh, And even those are challenged. See, God demands all of us, our hearts, our minds, our actions, our words, everything. But He gives us more grace. James's original readers desperately needed more grace. Man, don't we need it too? See, we're, we're no less impacted by the values of our world than James's readers were. It is too easy for us to be a Christian on Sunday and live however we want to, live like everyone else from Monday to Friday. We're no less impacted. We need more grace. How can we get it? How do we accept this offer of more grace? We need a reorientation of our hearts. We need to repent. I think this is where the book has been driving to, to verse 6 through 14. Let's look at it again. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So we need to reject the arrogant and prideful life that our world promotes as normal, a life that sets itself up as number one. And we need to fall before our Creator God in humble submission. Read with me verses 7 to 10. I think this gives us an instruction on how we are to submit to God. So verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves to the Lord. And he will lift you up. It's actually a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to come before our loving God in joyful submission and repentance. Um, There might be people here today who have never actually taken that step of repenting to God. If you're someone who's never come before God and said, please forgive me, I want to be yours. Now is a great time to do it. You can be forgiven. You can be made clean 
right now simply by accepting the offer of grace that God has placed before us. Or just say simply to God, I'm sorry for my selfishness and pride. I'm sorry for enjoying the pleasures of the world with no regard to you. Please forgive me. I want to belong to you. And because God loves us so much, he's made a way for us to be cleansed in Jesus. But the book of James is pretty, it's not written to people who have never heard about Jesus. It's written to Christians. It's written to people who have already staken their claim as one of his children, who have already come to God with that initial prayer of repentance. And yet they need a correction. To them, James says, come back to Jesus. You need to walk daily in dependence of him. Get rid of your worldly pride and humbly submit to him. and He will lift you up. He gives us more grace. But what does it actually mean to submit to God? How can we make this a bit more concrete? If that's the key solution that James has been driving to, we need to work it out. Well, let's have a look. I'm going to take verses 7 to 10 as a chunk under the heading of, or under the instruction of submit therefore to God. So what does it mean to submit to God? Here are the four things. Let's just run through them quickly. And uh, I think this provides some particulars about what submission looks like in James. Firstly, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So I think this does mean that we would work at saying no to evil temptation, like we heard in chapter 1. But I think it's more than that too. I think resisting the devil here is to, well, stand, make that choice, stand in opposition to Satan and all that he represents, his values, his priorities. See, it's choosing to walk in the path of heavenly wisdom, which in chapter 3, verse 15, um, James writes that it's to choose heavenly wisdom over worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom which is unspiritual and demonic. So resisting the devil then is to outright reject his ways and his the, st- the structure of setting up our lives that is in opposition to God. So firstly, submission means to reject Satan and his ways. Secondly, come near to God and he will come near to you. Submission to God involves devotion. It's a drawing near to God in worship. For James's readers, um, with a very Jewish background, this would have reminded them of their Old Testament, Old Covenant um, priestly practice. The idea of coming near to God was what the, the Jewish priests would do. As they came into the temple, they, through the process of um, the sacrificial system, the cultic ritual of Judaism, priests could come near to God and offer sacrifices of worship. Well, now, James knows that through Jesus, we're a nation of priests. We can all, as we've been cleansed by Jesus, draw near to God, come near to God in worship. I mean, this is the argument of Hebrews, which I think is so beautiful, kind of summed up in chapter 10. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 22, where we're told in the same language, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, cleansed, uh, sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
waters while we can come near to God. What a beautiful picture of being washed by Christ. Submission to God involves coming near to Him in worship, confident, not in ourselves, but in the amazing offer of grace that we have in Christ, the cleansing we have in Him. Okay, the third thing, submission to God also means, it's in there, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify, your, you purify yourself, you're double-minded, purify your hearts, it says. So Christians who stumble, who fall in step with the, uh, the, the way, the practices of the world, we need to admit our guilt. I don't know if, about you, but sometimes it's hard, isn't it, just to say, actually, I'm wrong. We, this, this is the, the prideful person that kind of just sets ourselves up as, no, I don't get it wrong. We, we need to, as God's people, to admit our guilt. Because we do get it wrong, and we have a perfect God. So I reckon it would have been shocking for James's original readers to be called sinners. I mean, this is a term really reserved for the outsiders. So they had the righteous people of God, and the sinners were the outsiders. So, what James is saying is, well, for you double-minded ones, so-called Christians who have half their allegiance given over to the world, James says, you've got to admit your sin. You've become just like the outsiders. Submission to God involves washing your hands. It's a call to repentance, an admission of guilt. Of course, if we don't realise our guilt, how can we be forgiven? The fourth thing in the passage, grieve, mourn and wail, Change your laughter to, jo- to mourning and your joy to gloom. Submission to God involves godly sorrow in the face of our sin. So James begs his readers to change that temporary laughter, that temporary fleeting joy they have from being friends of the world, change it out for acknowledgement of sin that comes in sorrow and mourning. Change it out while you can. Flip it now. At, before you, you don't have the choice. See, it's a wonderful promise that comes to those who repent humbly. It's that God would lift you up. There is forgiveness for the humble, repentant sinner. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. We're going to get a chance to do this directly after the sermon in, the, in our corporate prayer of confession. Uh, so an immediate and obvious application of what James is saying is let's pray a prayer of confession together. And as you go about this week, just consider how we're going to do this in a daily way as we walk in this path of humble submission, rejection of the world and Satan, a love for God and neighbour, an expression of dependence on Christ for His forgiveness. He makes us clean, a washing of our hands and our hearts. all its warnings and commands, the book of James ultimately is a book of grace. James writes to Christians who, like us, struggle to live righteous lives in the world. Like us, they get spiritually disorientated. They keep falling in love with the world rather than love with God. They fight, quarrel, judge, show favoritism, slander and curse. Their good works dry up and their hearts become salty and polluted. They commit spiritual adultery. 
Yet, even in the face of all this, God stands ready and eager to welcome wayward people back. He stands ready to forgive the sinner, to lift up the humble, to cleanse those who submit to him. And this side of heaven, we all stumble in many ways. It tells us this in the book. The life of the Christian is a life lived in humble submission to our Creator God. It doesn't mean that we can never have joy or fun. We can only really rejoice in, in the world, in the things He's given us, in our relationship with Him because of His active lifting us up not because of our own arrogantly grasping what we can get out of this life. The life of the Christian is a life lived in humble submission to our Creator God. We need to walk daily in the joy of repentance and dependence. This is our humble ambition. I'm going to pray and then um, Pete's going to come up and lead us in a prayer of confession. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we can experience the full joy of life as it was created and meant to be because we are made clean and perfect and pure in your eyes. Lord Jesus, please help us to live in step with your spirit, in step with the wisdom from heaven as a people redeemed and forgiven by you. And help us to walk daily in dependence in you rather than our arrogant pride. Help us to walk daily in forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.